Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is my colleague, Dr. Semra Atour. Semra is an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy and holds a PhD in epidemiology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a Master of Public Health from Boston University. Her research focuses on socio-ecological resilience. She's published about 40 academic papers, books, and book chapters on topics related to public health. In this interview, we talk about her journey from discovering the field of public health as an undergraduate to her pursuit of technical skills to support her passion for public health. And then we talk about some examples of her interdisciplinary research, blending together fields such as epidemiology, engineering, and urban planning to improve community health and health equity. It was a lot of fun for me to get into depth with Semra about her background, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. And if you do enjoy this podcast, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Semra Atour. Welcome to the podcast, Semra. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, Starting with kind of your background story, you went to Brown University and you studied human biology. Why did you choose to go to Brown and, and what, was, uh, what was the interest in human biology? Sure. So it really stemmed from my dad was a doctor. So okay. he was a doctor of internal medicine and cardiology. And I grew up in a fairly small town at the time, Plattsburgh, New York, which is in upstate New York, very close to Canada, across the lake from Burlington, Vermont. Oh, lovely. So now it's probably not such a small town, but back then it had a pretty rural feel. And my dad, I think, had the luxury of practicing much as we think of nostalgically as a rural family physician. He cared for many patients for their whole life. He did some home visits, which probably no one does anymore. And he sort of grew from, he showed me the one-room Victorian house that used to be the hospital when he moved there, which is now a major teaching facility that's part of the UVM Medical Center. So that kind of colored, you know, I think my experience in two ways. I was always interested in caring for people, probably largely influenced by my dad, who really reached out to everybody in the community. And the other piece was, I think, growing up in a place that was really beautiful, close to the lake, close to the Adirondack Mountains. But there was also a lot of um, economic, I think, a lot of poverty and a lot of times when people were out of work, people were struggling. What had once been a rich agricultural kind of economic heritage were now farms struggling to hold on and generations not wanting the farm anymore and trying to figure out where else to, how else to make a living. So I knew I wanted to do something to do with healthcare, and I thought I would be a doctor because that was all I knew. Yeah. And I admired my dad and I admired people who did medicine and I didn't know there were other avenues other than nursing. That was the other obvious one. And I sort of thought I would prefer to go to medical school. But then when I went to Brown, which I chose for two reasons, one was to get 
to the big city, which (laughs) I, even though I loved growing up in Plattsburgh, it benefited me in so many ways. And I had such wonderful neighbors there. I was ready for, you know, at age 17, 18 to say, whoa, I'm ready for the big time. And Providence, Rhode Island at the time sounded like a, a really interesting place to be. And the other thing was Brown really now, I would use the term fosters interdisciplinarity. At the time, from my 18-year-old self, I didn't know that word. I didn't know what it meant. But it sort of created this attraction for students who wanted to think broadly about, let's say, a biology degree, but maybe you also loved art or you also loved music. And you wanted to find a way to explore those during your college career without someone telling you, oh, you know, you're a biology major. What are you doing studying painting? (laughs) And it really sort of fostered that idea that interdisciplinarity, creating your own major, being able to think about the ways in which different sets of knowledge complement each other was something that was promoted there. And that was very clear from both what the students were doing and how the faculty interacted with the students when I visited. Neat. Yeah. Um, So you went there as a biology major or a human Mm -hmm. biology major. Yep. Thinking maybe medicine. Yes. Where did so you didn't ultimately? Do I didn't medicine, ultimately so do medicine. Was the decision? Were you still thinking? When did you? I would say. When did you thinking change? I think I started to change at the beginning of my senior year. Okay. When I finally interacted with professors who showed me that there were other possible careers in health that could be very exciting that weren't on the traditional medical school track. So I met medical anthropologists, for example. I met people doing women's studies and epidemiology and medicine that were part of the School of Public Health, although at the time, I don't think they had a public health undergraduate major that really kind of grew up in the past couple of years. Um, So, you know, it was just showing me that there are other ways to think about health, other ways to think about contributing to the health of communities. And that was the big change that had to do with not just the individual clinical approach, but how you facilitate health through other social systems. And that was probably the biggest change that maybe happened kind of late because I was already a senior at the time. But those kinds of things made me really curious and made me say, okay, at least I want to take a year in between to kind of think about whether it's going to be medical school or what else is out there. And that's when I began to explore, oh, there's a degree in public health. There are possibly other avenues Mm -hmm. to pursue. And so I took, I think I took two gap years in between where I worked for a research lab at Brown. So I stayed in the Providence area and was working in in a sleep research lab actually with some wonderful folks who did research there. And that allowed me to both explore research, but also that connection back to you can do many other things if you're interested in health. You could be a researcher. You could be a public health practitioner. You could be involved without necessarily being a doctor. So that was where that kind of happened. Okay. So you were uh, you stayed on at Brown. Uh, you started to do this research. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, you moved up to the Boston area and started working yeah. as a research assistant at Tufts? Yes. And that was really concurrent with my MPH. So once I okay. took the couple of years off remaining in the Providence area, working with uh, Mary Karskadden, who's a wonderful sleep researcher there, and had some time to just explore research and what a public health approach might look like, even though I still wasn't quite sure, but it was increasingly feeling like the right thing for me. And then I started to think about graduate school and where could I go for a public health MPH degree. Okay. So so you made the, so working in this field, it, you, it, you kind of made it your decision. Yeah. I want to go more towards a population orientation mm-hmm. rather than an individual medical model. Right, right. And so you decided to head up to Boston to, to 
do your uh, MPH. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. where did you go for that? So I went to Boston University. Okay. And there were two really interesting pieces that led to that decision. The first one was that I was able to work and go to school at night, which was important to me then. And I was really fortunate again. I got a job at New England Medical Center, which is now Tufts New England Medical Center, and worked in the radiology department. But I had just a wonderful set of colleagues who knew that I also was going to school and they were pretty flexible with letting me, you know, go leave early if I came in early the next day to accommodate my classes and were just very encouraging of people who wanted to go to graduate school. So I had a wonderful set of colleagues then. My supervisor was one of the first female radiologists in the nation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So really great mentors all the way along. And she was just very encouraging about saying, you know, go to graduate school. It's important. And really the colleagues that I had mostly were residents. So I had my, my boss who was a seasoned radiologist, but then the rest of the people I hung out with were medical residents. So they were also, you know, in a different way, but we were all kind of studying a lot and staying up late at night studying. And it had a great sense of community in a way that created a, a really good energy. I think we were all, we all knew we were working on health and we were working hard and sleep deprived, ironically, <laughs> but um, it was a good community. And Boston, so you had a program there where you could go to school at night, you could work and do your degree in a um, somewhat non-traditional way. The other thing that was really wonderful is I had a lot of colleagues in my cohort at BU who had been around the world. So doing international medicine. I myself have traveled, but I hadn't done healthcare stuff anywhere else. So I met a lot of people who were doing public health nursing overseas, all kinds of other applications, working in Africa, working in other parts of Europe, and just hearing their stories was really, really interesting. And it had great, great faculty, I think, introducing you to just the components of public health, health law, health policy, epidemiology, and of course, the human behavior side, which I had been already quite interested in from my work up until this point. But it really was a, a great place. And the other thing it allowed me to do is for some of my classes, I could work for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, more or less as an intern, but you could do things like grant writing for them and have okay. it count toward part of your coursework. So instead of a final paper, I wrote a diabetes grant for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health that they actually used. And they mentored me through that. And it was kind of a win-win, a very integrated with the community there, which was just wonderful yeah. for a young person to, to be able to do. Great. Yeah. Um, so going to the program, it continued to help nurture your interest in public health? Did yeah. it kind of confirmed that this was the direction you wanted Absolutely. to go? Absolutely. In fact, I think what happened there, and part of it was being in the Boston area with so many people, like I mentioned, my mentor at Tufts was someone who had started in radiology and just become this really wonderful female leader. And then I met people who were fairly young professionals, but were doing very diverse and very exciting things. So there was one of my colleagues who worked in the health department who was leading the diabetes initiative. And I just thought that's so, you know, she has a whole department focused on prevention. And it was really, to me, wonderful. And another woman in a separate wing was doing things related to hospitals that we now would consider part of social determinants of health and how hospitals were thinking of integrating care for people who had different health issues, whether it's um, low income, low education. How do we integrate that with their clinical care? Back then, we didn't even have the word social determinants of health, yeah. but she was writing a whole manual with the CDC on that, and I came in as a research assistant and got to hear, and it was just this very dynamic, you know, it seemed like the sky was so blue and so wide open with the different things you could do. 
And I just thought, I'll never run out of variety. I'll never run out of, you know, any of these things is is exciting on its own. But there were so many possibilities and different directions that you could take it, depending on what the community needed and what your colleagues happened to be doing. So So where did you kind of make the decision between staying as a practitioner and going on to be, you know, ultimately yeah. coming. So, so kind of fast forward, obviously, you're, <laughs> right. you're here as a, as a professor and a researcher. Yeah. So where did you make, and so very focused on research, teaching, yeah. um, uh, and, and we'll talk about your research and you're still very much engaged with the yeah. community, but, but kind of where did you make the decision that, um, or when did it happen that you were like, you know, I really want to stay more towards the research side and less Not towards the Not till pretty late. So up until now, A, I never thought of getting my PhD. I wasn't one of those people who had okay. this long term. I thought the MPH was it. It was a terminal degree. That's mm-hmm. for many people how it's intended to be. And I really thought that was going to be the, the end. And I was going to be a public health practitioner. My first job after I graduated with my M- MPH was actually in Texas. So then I, I just looked for jobs everywhere. I applied everywhere. And I got a great job at Presbyterian Health System in Dallas, Texas, where I was hired as a health outcomes analyst, but using an epidemiology approach to follow patient populations long-term in several of their, so their cardiovascular patients, their orthopedic patients, and some of their maternal child health patients. And why were they interested? They were interested from an outcomes perspective. So for example, if a patient comes in and has cardiac bypass surgery, or at the time minimally invasive procedures were just coming out, if they had regular standard cardiac bypass versus uh, um, an angioplasty or a stent, were their outcomes over three years similar? Were the minimally invasive procedures comparing favorably? Mm -hmm. And the second part of that were, did their patients return to work? Did their patients return to the things that, it's one thing to fix your heart, it's another thing to know that your patients are able to reintegrate into the workforce, into other kinds of outcomes that are now measured as part of long-term patient care. So they were very forward-thinking at the time. I mean, now all of this is pretty mainstream. And we're incentivized pretty powerfully. Yeah, and and back then. Because that's what's running through my mind. This is the mid-90s. It's the mid-90s. And how this happened is, you know, we'll talk about leadership later, but a vice president and a nursing quality researcher, both who also had public health degrees, who got together and realized, "Mm, we want someone in this position who can bring this kind of public health methods lens. And they must have convinced their higher ups that this approach was important. And together, the leadership created a structure for that. So at the time, I think that was very unique, not so much anymore. But they were really, I was, again, fortunate that I just kind of landed in a place where people had already set that train in motion. So you were there for a Two, three years? About two and a half to three yeah. years. And okay. so to answer your question, so first of all, it was a great experience. Yeah. Again, I, I was I learned so much. I learned about all of these different ways of dealing with now a clinical population, but using the tools I learned in epidemiology to mm. measure those outcomes. What got me to decide that I wanted to go back is most of the patients that I was seeing were heart patients, and that's always been a big interest of mine. But I was seeing them at the very end stage of their disease process. So in public health when we talk about primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention, Mm -hmm. which I just did with my students a little while ago, you know, the primary side is how can we prevent disease in the first place? 
things like diet and exercise and not smoking. And then secondary prevention is through kind of moderate disease management or screening processes, screening for high blood pressure, identifying disease early or risk factors early. If people look like they need some counseling about diet or managing prediabetes, for example, getting their disease risk factors under control before something complicated happens. And then tertiary prevention, which is really what my experience here was focused on, is people are already pretty sick. They already have heart disease that's bad enough that you need a full bypass procedure or at least something of an angioplasty or stent. So you're already kind of at a fairly advanced progression of disease. Mm -hmm. And while that was really exciting, more and more I felt pulled back to working on the primary and secondary aspects and having some influence over that. So I, I love the work I was doing with the very complicated patients, but I said, boy, I would have loved, again, from the population lens, to work on influencing that population trajectory earlier so we can prevent people from getting in this situation in the first place, which is always a work in progress. But in order to do that, too, I said, well, in order to do that, I need to build my skill sets in how to do research around prevention whether it's primary or secondary, and really fine-tune the kinds of skills that you would learn in epidemiology or biostatistics so that you can lead the kinds of studies that investigate those questions, interventions that can be primary or secondary prevention, and eventually lead that kind of research. And you couldn't really do that with an MPH degree. But you could have... So I guess, I mean, your focus... What I hear you saying is your focus was always kind of on the research and the desire to discover what it is we could do. Yeah. But there were, even with the MPH, you mm-hmm. could have said, well, you know what, I'm, I've been working in a hospital, yeah. but I really want to be more on the primary and secondary side. So there are organizations that are already, yeah. that are implementing it, There policy. are. So, but I wanted, but wanted to be to... the one coming up with the question. Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> and Why having, is that? How, how did that... Um, I think in part because I knew that eventually, I, A, I would probably be able to do it. So I admired the people who had yeah. taught me up until yeah. this point. Yeah. I really, as I mentioned, I just looked up to these people who had guided me to that probably you know late 20s part of my career and thought, someday I, I want to be able to do that for other people who are coming up. But in order to do that, my own skills have to be more advanced than they are now. Okay. And then I, I did a lot of thinking about, well, what exactly are those more advanced skills? Okay. And I landed on epidemiology in part just for the methodological rigor, because uh-huh. at the time, and I think it's still true, you know, you can really um, say that the kinds of things you learn in terms of a really good epidemiology and biostatistics program, if you're going to do research that's federally funded or that has that level of rigor that's expected for some of the better medical journals, um, they're looking for you to know how to do those things. Very interesting. So yeah. you were working. Uh, so you were working in Texas. You were still at the hospital. You were starting to connect with the CDC, yep. doing some of the primary and secondary work that yeah. you were interested in. So at what point did you actually wind up making the jump to the PhD? Well, so I was probably toward the maybe year two, two and a half, already thinking about what schools would be appropriate and doing some early investigation. And then it wasn't really until 
yeah, I guess it was my third year in Texas where I was pretty sure, okay, I've, I've made the decision. I want to go back and get a PhD. And then it was a pretty hard decision about which program I wanted to do. For a while, I considered a health policy program right away. But I think what drew me to UNC was at the time their reputation for methods, and it still is one of the best places to get a really strong methods background. And I knew that if that was the part of myself that I wanted to evolve, that I would go and just kind of throw myself into the fire and try to learn as much methodology as I could from the people who were really among the best in the country at, at teaching that. And then I could apply that topically, which will come out later. Once I had that toolbox, I figured I could do whatever I want with it, kind of taking it back to the Brown University approach. It was like, okay, once I know that stuff, I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how I, how I approached it. And then it was just, you know, when I got in, I was pretty excited. Okay. So. Um, what did you do your dissertation on? So you, yeah. you're a big part of of the, the PhD process is to discover a question or find right. a question and apply yeah. all those methods yeah. that you've been learning to it. So what did you what did you wind up settling on? So I ended up doing, um, the term we use now is the built environment and health. And it kind of ties back to what I was talking about. So the built environment ranges from anything to how we design our cities, whether those create aspects of segregated parts of communities, um, how we use land. So the policies we have around land use, around transportation, and what we think about are those things allow people to have access to healthy things or to not have access to them. And this whole sort of intersection between urban planning, which includes rural, not just urban, and community neighborhood design and their relationship to health outcomes historically had been there in the 1800s. In a way, that's what John Snow, the most famous epidemiologist, did, is he looked at you know, water systems in London and how they were linked to cholera. But then things kind of got, for a while, there wasn't really much connection between urban design or ur urban planning and how our built environment looks and what the health outcomes of communities are. But then it kind of had a resurgence right around the time that I was going back to graduate school where people were returning to those historical questions, whether they're part of our segregated past or part of the way we build things now. And we know that even how we build transportation corridors can allow people to access health care or not, or food deserts, which you've studied. These right. are all kind of byproducts of, of how we design. And so I started taking courses with urban planning professionals, and it kind of ties back to the Brown University aspect of thinking where I thought, you know, I can see that there's really a connection between both social justice aspects and access to having or not having access to very important resources that then enable us to either eat healthy or be physically active or access healthcare. All of the things we know we should do behaviorally are somewhat structured by both our physical and our social environment. And so at the time, most of my professors were starting to work on these built environment questions. And I thought they were pretty fascinating. And I knew that I was still interested in cardiovascular outcomes broadly, but to break that down, which you have to do when you're doing a dissertation, is I said, well, I really am interested in specifically the physical activity piece, which is a modifiable risk factor, mm -hmm. and some of the nutrition pieces, but more of my work was focused on physical activity and how that can either prevent diabetes and obesity and ultimately um, lead to either reducing levels of heart disease. And then I wanted to look at how our community-built environments either support um, healthy behaviors and maybe reduce 
obesity or whether they do the opposite, which are now called obesogenic environments. So in 2009, you landed here at, uh, at UNH. Yeah. So so some of it was a family decision to yeah. come here. Yeah. Uh, what else attracted you to, to And then, to you know, more and more, I really thought that I, I would like to teach. Mm-hmm. But just being able to think about, well, when I get to the point where I want to work with younger people, and maybe there are people who are interested in public health, how can I be of service to that? And that's where the appeal of teaching really began to, to be something okay. that I thought more and more I wanted to be invested okay. in. And so I looked at a couple of jobs in this area. And I think what I really loved about UNH was a little bit like Brown was people here said, well, it's not that you're going to be part of a medical school, which has some pros and some cons in terms of doing public health research. But that kind of means that you can collaborate with people who are doing life sciences stuff. You're not often in a medical school, you're kind of put in a, in a niche and it's, you're more or less under the, a lot of rules about grant funding and what you can and can't do. But here, it was the whole idea of interdisciplinarity and being free to pursue interdisciplinary research as long as it had health at its core. Mm-hmm. You know, and that has been something I've loved, really loved about being here is I collaborate with all kinds of people and I usually can find health at its core. <laughs> So okay. it's it's freed up a lot of avenues that way. So you talked a little bit about bringing up the next generation, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and you know, one of your interests in coming to an academic environment as opposed to being at you know at a, at say a, even a, a dynamic health department like you were yeah. at, in Washington, you know, is, and we talked about this the idea of mentoring and collaboration. So yeah. you want to tell, talk a little bit about what that means to you to sure to mentor students. And, yeah, so I think for me, mentoring is both part of being grateful to the wonderful mentors that I had. And really, as we've talked, it's been wonderful for me to reflect back on just how much of a difference each of those people at those points, just believing in someone and showing them what their potential can be, and then giving them sometimes some guidance and tools that can nudge them along their way. And sometimes taking a chance on their success, which can be risky to someone depending on what point in the career they are. Those are all things that people shared with me and just gave so so generous so generously that at the time I didn't even realize how much it, it meant. Right. And then looking back, I'm thinking, wow, you know, if I had not had those people behind me, I certainly would not be where I am. And at the same time, just thinking what parts of, of what they gave me can I really just A, sort of deliver in my own way, because we all have our own styles, our own ways of relating to people. But really, I think a lot of it was encouraging students to A, find an area they care about. So find an area that you're passionate about. And before anyone tells you it's crazy, really think about, is there a way that I could maybe bridge two things that I'm interested in or look more deeply into something from a different way? And then just be willing to hear a student out and give them a chance, even if at first, you know, people try and fail in life. And that's that's part of being open to that too. But sharing what you know, both from your own toolbox of, of knowledge, but I think a lot of it is showing someone that you support their journey. That's probably the biggest thing, and it's not something that necessarily can be quantified or taught, but giving someone the chance to say, yeah, if you want to try this out and you're committed, I'm behind you 100%. That, that fits well with the 
you know, mentoring is one of my areas of research that <laughs> yeah. fits well with the literature. You know, yep. Kathy Cram kind of talked about, you know, mentoring as having uh, a psychosocial support portion yep. and a coaching portion. Yeah. So it's kind of what you just said. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm glad I didn't totally botch that one because I haven't read a whole lot. It's, this is more, a, right. I should. I, I actually hope to more formally, especially as, like you said, as I go into more higher levels of, of service and leadership, really apply some more evidence-based practices to mentoring. But so far, it's been just really driven by kind of my, my values more than anything else. So you also became a teacher for the first time. I yeah. think. Or you maybe had some as only part of from TA. what I mentioned through the yeah. TA stuff. But again, that was you were more or less told the con. Here's the content, right? And you've had your you've had it before, and so it definitely was great experience, but not really Colored by numbers kind of. Yeah, thing, mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. So becoming a teacher for the first time and really being responsible for the material, what was that like? Yeah, really just trying to get back in touch with what do students need. What is some of their curiosity about whether or not they end up in public health, because not all of them will, but what are some aspects of learning about the process of either thinking about public health or some of the tools that could be helpful to their lives, no matter what they become, and kind of taking it back to that and thinking about how to make content exciting, which I know you do a lot of, whether it's through that experiential learning, hearing directly from people, or now we have all the different tools like yeah. video and technology, and we have a lot more tools at our disposal and how we use them that can be the trick, but trying to build that in in a way that made students excited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about your research, um, some, some examples of your research. So uh, one of the things you talk about uh, you know, when you're talking about your research is a framework you call the, or, or refer to as the socio-ecological model. Um, why is that framework important to you and what, sure. what is it? Yeah. Okay, so all it really is, and I like it in part for its simplicity, is it's a way of thinking about a complex system which includes us and the world we live in. It's a way to think about it in layers, a lot of the way that you would think about peeling an onion. So when I first teach this to my students, I say, well, think about an onion and at the core of the onion is a person or it could be a population of people. And they have internal characteristics at their core, which is everything from their genomics, their physiology, their neurology, all of those intrinsic properties that are centered in the individual. And then we can think of the next layer out in the onion, which is the relationships between people. And so now what we're building around the person are the things that influence the person, either the person's health or the person's psychological outlook, whichever things we're interested in. But we're starting from just their internal characteristics and then we're moving out to other things that affect them in layers. So the next layer would be social relationships. That's all the work now around social support, social networks, mentoring, all of that stuff. And then the next layer out from that is goes by different names, but either community level or institutions. So we all spend a lot of our time in institutional structures, whether it's our work, or if we you know, follow a church, we might go there sometimes. We're part of a neighborhood. We live in a certain state and town. And all of those things from the built environment that I talked about to the kinds of policies or norms that guide this place and your way of living in this place affect you. So even here on our campus, you know, we were lucky enough to kind of be able to walk around a lot and have some nice trees outside our window. And there are things that we could think of that affect us just by being here, positively or negatively. So the places where we spend our time. 
And then as we go out to the next level, it's kind of bigger level policy. And this one can be thought of as either macro level kind of policies that include everything from our national policy, could be international context. It also includes things like culture and the things that anthropologists look at from a large human dimensions perspective that are really macro level drivers of the human experience, economics mm. too, mm -hmm. um, political and economic systems, all of those climate systems. So these are just the big, big world around us. And so what I say is imagine these layers of the onion and those different layers of influence kind of trickle down and affect the people at the core. And that's how we think about health as being this multi-level concept influenced by all of these other things. So that's, that's a, it. That's a neat model. So how did you, so I've got a couple of examples of your, of papers, so I thought we'd run through them. Uh, and maybe we could talk a little bit about kind of the methods you used sure. as well as kind of the problem that you were trying to assess. Yep. So the first one I wanted to run, uh, talk about was one we mentioned, which I think grows out of your, um, your dissertation work, yeah. which was Urban Containment Policies and Physical Activity, a Time Series Analysis of Metropolitan Areas 1990 to 2002. That's a good academic title. Right. <laughs> that was a very academic one. <laughs> so what does that all mean? What yeah. were you looking at? So what I was looking at, and it was really back when I was trying to think about how to take a metric from the urban planning world, so what people were exposed to in terms of their urban environment, translate that into something measurable, and then look at a health outcome longitudinally on the other end. Okay. So I was still at the point where you know, the research was even just like, can we look at things this way? Are there metrics that we can develop that even allow us to analyze these relationships? So part of it was looking at, from an urban planning perspective, the, the way that it's been thought about now and talked about a lot in the media is the concept of urban sprawl. So at the time, there had been some studies done before that showed that cities that were growing in a kind of what we would consider a sprawling way, which means just exponential growth, not much attention to where land use change was planned and in what ways, transportation systems sometimes not supporting the human structures that were exploding on the periphery of the city. Yeah. And there's various definitions that from an urban planning perspective define sprawl in a, a more academic way. But there are some things that you can look at as criteria. And then there's some policies that from the time that I was doing the research, different uh, cities and sometimes states were putting into place to try to constrain sprawl <laughs> because there was a theory that it was costing us a lot of money because people were not then able to get to things efficiently and the growing research about it might be bad for health. It might be bad for air pollution, bad for behavior, potentially contributing to obesity. So these were things that people were beginning to link to sprawl. So my research was really taking this more policy lens and looking at places where different policies at either uh, city scale, so large cities because rural places weren't really doing this at the time, or state level policies and sometimes both, that set some boundaries on how growth occurred. So there are different approaches to doing that. It's not really a, a purely black and white kind of thing. But there have been some that are more rigid, where it's really almost mandated that you cannot, <laughs> you cannot build in the rural area. And then there's some that are quite um, voluntary incentive-based, where it's more about providing economic incentives to build where they believe growth should occur and to not provide economic incentives where they do not want growth to occur. But all of this is meant to influence the shape and the size 
of the city itself. So that's the urban containment. That's the urban containment. The... Yeah, the urban containment. And luckily for me, there had been some work done at Virginia Tech before that really laid more of a scholarly foundation for classifying types of containment. So again, when I think of the variety of approaches that can be used, what I did was use a political science lens that had already been developed by these other researchers that essentially allowed me to say there's very strong approaches, the mandated ones. There's some medium strong ones that can include incentives and some weak policies. And then there's basically nothing. It was kind of like a three-tiered system. Okay. And what that means, though, epidemiologically, is we now set up a model that has three levels of exposure, right? So this was sort of the back and forth. It's like, well, how do we classify? Is there any grounding for classifying things this way? And then I could take it back to what I know from epidemiology and say, well, essentially, then I have an exposure that has three categories, none medium, or a really strong policy environment for these urban containment initiatives. And then I can look at whether obesity and physical activity trends over time have changed differently according to the none, the medium, or the strong. And that's, that's essentially all I did. So that's the time series. <laughs> yeah, piece. that's the time series. So you could look at both when the policy was enacted and you could look at the trajectory, just like you would do in economics, the kind of like a difference in difference, the trajectory before, they're kind of on this trend, and then maybe they pass the policy, whether it's strong, weak, or if they did nothing, did they then start having more physical activity occurring? Did they have more prevalence of obesity or less, or was it basically the same? So you could you look at the trends in these outcomes, which mine were obesity and physical activity, and correlate them over time with the different levels of policy and when the policy was adopted. So what did you find? So I found that for the strongest ones, there was a noticeable change over time where those places, which were relatively few is the downside, had adopted a really strong policy environment to constrain growth, um, that there was more walking and more physical activity over time at a population level and less obesity but there really was not much difference between the none and the moderate. Mm. <laughs> or okay. not a statistically significant difference. Interesting. Yeah. So another example is um, of, of your research was aligning climate change, adaptation, planning, and adaptive governance, lessons from Exeter, New Hampshire. So yeah. Exeter, New Hampshire is just down the street from us. I know. And since that time, I've actually expanded that work with my, my colleague, Paul Kirshen, who's a wonderful engineer now at UMass Boston. We've looked at Hampton, Seabrook, and Hampton Falls, and Exeter. So it kind of grew from, we've now got a few more communities in the mix. But really, it kind of follows from the work that I was doing then, where communities, city governments in this case, became interested in thinking about the human and economic costs of changing environments. Some of that is climate driven. So flooding is the one we're dealing with most of all on the seacoast of New right. Hampshire. But increasingly there's heat stress, there's stress to people, stress to buildings that are occurring with increasing temperatures. And all of this now is less a question of, you know, is climate change real, but more we know it's happening and how can cities adapt. So these initiatives are largely led not by academics, but by city governments, um, in this case, boards of selectmen saying, we need some kind of plan. We need to think about this. 
it's going to cost us money and potentially hurt people. <laughs> so what are we going to do? And so a lot of these initiatives are the planning process before I was talking about urban containment and policies about land use and transportation. Now we're having a whole new era of planning around climate adaptation, which can include land use and transportation and emergency response and a lot of other things. But together, they're supposed to think not just about conditions now, but what are some of the changes like flooding, like more frequent storms, more frequent winter issues with ice and power outages that are really requiring us to think differently. When I read this, it really resonated with my own studies of economics because my influences were uh, the Austrian school, Hayek and Israel Kirzner, for example, who really look a lot at the importance of local knowledge. So yeah, it really it's, resonated. and that's a hallmark of adaptive gov governance. Right, yeah. and, and just the idea, like well, I was reading about your conversations and you know talking to the local fire chief who actually knows where the flooding had right, happened, right, and, and, right, and you know, and then who lives there, and yeah, you know, and um, whereas you know maybe looking at a maps or or satellite imagery, you're not going to get the full exactly. story, right? Exactly. So we yes. as academics would have that kind of knowledge, mm -hmm. but then you have the actual community knowledge. Right. And and really together more. making meaning of that in order, ultimately, it's the community's decision of what they want to do yeah. and what they want to invest in. And just bringing as many perspectives to, to the table that can inform that process. So you did a case study in this mm -hmm. case. So the first paper we talked about uh, was a, a time series analysis. That's really a statistical it's, It was mostly data-driven. In that case, I unlike there was a cross-sectional part where I really talked to people, but that one, the okay. national level was purely, you're right, getting data, stringing it together, and doing statistical stuff to it. So the one we're talking about here with, with uh, the, the adaptive governance was a, a, what's called a case study. So yeah. what's the difference there? Well, so both in approach and in the way the research is presented. So for the, the case study, I was spending a lot of time in Exeter, you know, meeting with the select board. The, the town planner at the time was very involved, was a collaborator on the research. So it wasn't me sitting in my office. It was really taking the time to meet with people from the community, hearing about their local knowledge, as you mentioned, which is so important, and then documenting all of that in relation to what we were finding from the scientific models, which was the more analytic part. I think that's just a, a really cool approach. I mean, it's it's, and that's a very different approach than the the quantitative yep. study you'd done before. So that leads us to the, a third example of of the kind of research you do, and that was um, a paper that I actually worked with you on uh, through the lens of a camera, exploring the meaning of competitive sport participation among youth athletes with disability. So this used a really cool research method called PhotoVoice. Talk, tell us a little bit about what PhotoVoice is and why did you choose to use that research method for this problem? Okay, so PhotoVoice comes from a tradition known as participatory action research, which is really where the subjects of the research are considered co-collaborators. So they're not considered lab rats or people that you're kind of studying objectively, but more that these people, whether in this case they were kids with disabilities or really anyone who you think has a unique perspective, and you're allowing them to tell their story in a manner that really resonates with them. And so usually you just prompt people sort of like we're doing in this podcast through a structure of questions that allows them to, in this case we're using photography along with their story, but tell me why something is important to you, show me why you care about an issue. Often in this case it was focused around 
youth with disabilities being able to participate in sports. So we were using photography and narrative to allow kids to show us what their world looks like and both what sport means to them, what it's like to be on a competitive sports team, and we explored questions of identity, but really trying to not prescribe a whole lot in terms of what the interview process looked like, but using the technique of photo voice, which gives cameras to people and then allows them to take a series of photographs that then anchor the kind of meaning-making discussion to say, well, why did you take this photo? What does it tell us about the meaning of sports participation for you? And we had some questions about um, connecting that back to community strengths and access questions. So you, you literally gave the kids cameras and yes. said, go take pictures related around- A theme usually. This theme of, of sport participation. Yes. And then they came back with a bunch of photos mm -hmm. and you sat down with them and went through the photos. That's right. And talked. Yeah, it's almost like a focus group with photographs anchoring the discussion. So the nice thing about that, too, is it's all of the kids collectively got to look at each other's photographs. So there's part of it that's kind of one-on-one -on -one where you're hearing from the person who took the photo, why was it meaningful, etc. But then you're also showing that photograph to the other people in the group who are other youth participants as well as the other researchers. And so we're all kind of hearing that story collectively. And sometimes the new insights come from that where other people might ask a question or say, oh, you know, I had a photo that also touched upon that idea or that theme, that strength, that need, whatever the case might be. So using it as both an individual narrative and a group narrative can evolve from that. It was really neat for me to participate in that. And, and, um, and I hadn't been aware of that technique. <laughs> yeah. Why was that technique appropriate for this particular question and, and, and population. Yeah, so you'll probably remember from being part of that process yourself that very much the, the spirit of Northeast Passage, which was part of our, our collaboration team, is empowering youth. So allowing youth to participate in empowering activities, which can include sport or a variety of other ways that Northeast Passage approaches that. But so in my mind, we wanted a research process that is, if anything, facilitating empowerment. So photo voice comes from that tradition, which is a tradition started by Paulo Freire, a Brazilian educator who believed very much that everybody has something to teach us and that if we can structure a process of research around storytelling or now we have cameras, we have other modes like GIS and video that can allow voice to come out in different ways, that we really just can guide participants in telling us what they see, what they experience in their own words. And then using their own words with as little adulteration from the research team as possible to be the centerpiece of the research. So they become the producers of knowledge or the co-producers of knowledge. They have some decision-making power in how the research is presented because it's their own photos, their own captions. And I think in the case of that study, we also asked both parents and children where would you like this research to be viewed? And they chose other competitive um, sports tournaments where other athletes would come and that would be where the research was showcased, not just in a journal, not just in the places that we would like to tell the story, but where would they like to tell the story? So there are points at which the participants, and in this case it had to be both parents and children because many of them were under 18, have some control over how the questions are being asked, what are the methods through which you want to tell your story, 
and then where is the story shared or how is the story shared. And that whole process is meant to, if anything, give people more sense of control and more sense of empowerment over the story that they're choosing to share. So how does your socio-ecological model um, come, uh, how, did that, how did that influence the way you looked at the data? Yeah, so I think it was, part, it was partly how we looked at the data, but also the approach that we took, which is this participatory action research approach. I think all of us collectively agreed that that was a good fit for this question because it was very much focused on relationships, that interpersonal part of the model and also on empowerment from an individual part. You and I talked a little bit about agency mm -hmm. and self-empowerment. So kind of touching on the empowerment lens as it percolates in this case up through the socio-ecological layers. We can look at individual change, relationship changes, and then we kind of got to the place in the research where we were talking about social change and whether that aligned in some cases or didn't align with the kinds of things that the kids wanted to do in order to feel that they were living an empowered life. And, you know, they're just taking it from a sports lens, but we looked at the kinds of access they had to venues to participate in sports, the kinds of things that we do as a society that maybe facilitate a perception of difference or of bringing people of various ability levels together where there's less stigma around disability. So it allowed us to enter into those conversations that touch on multiple layers of that onion again. And I think when we wrote together, we wrote the discussion of that paper, we used the social ecological model again to think about what are some of the challenges of making change? What are some of the ways in which the youth's own perspective informed our perceptions of empowerment? And that became a vehicle for organizing and thinking through the different levels of resilience again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was really striking being part of this study. Uh, I, I still think about, like, the, there was one young, young girl that uh, participated that took a picture at school, and it was a picture in the distance you could see playground. I know exactly. And she was taking it through, and then there was a gate, mm -hmm. and a fence with a gate, and she said, this is the playground uh, at my school, but I never play there because I can't get my wheelchair through the gate. Yes. And what a striking, like, sort of talking about your socio-ecological mm -hmm. model and barriers the, right. that are in place. And it was really, uh, for me, that was one of those striking, like, built environment kind of exactly. uh, uh, things that just... But the really built environment coming through her voice and her own observation that we might not have never seen the gate that way. Right, I wouldn't have, because I could just walk through it. Yeah, and yeah. There, there was a second photo that I think the same participant took, which was in the winter, and it had a snowbank. So not only was there the gate issue, there was, I'm sure, an unintentional pileup of the snowplow dumping the snow across the only wheelchair-accessible entrance to the playground. And she had another picture where it was the snowbank adding another layer of barrier, just because nobody intended that, but they just right. weren't thinking from her perspective. And, you know, just showing us that sometimes these thoughts can make a person who is in a wheelchair, in her case, unable to participate in certain things just because we're, we're not allowing ourselves to think about it through her eyes. So let me uh, 
let me pose you uh, the question that uh, our, our dean posed to me a while okay. back. And that was, if you could have to summarize your research agenda, meaning the things you do mm-hmm. in one sentence, what would it, what would it be? Socioecological resilience. Okay. And that's kind of an ap- academic way. You know, there's a whole literature now about that. But it takes the idea of the onion, which we started with, and it takes that into a little more of what we now call a complex systems viewpoint, where we know that between all the layers, there's little circles of what we call feedback loops. So there's a feedback loop between the policy level influencing what the individual could do. There's feedbacks between what communities are doing, maybe bubbling back up through a democratic process to change policy at larger levels. So there's all of these interactions really between the levels of the onion. And so when we're really looking at a a complex system, we're taking those feedbacks into account. And that can change over time and space and cause new things to emerge, either for individuals or for societies. So most of my work is touching on at least a piece of that, maybe not all of it together at the same time, but it's looking at kind of the emergence of resilience and sometimes how we can play a role in that through our research process or through things we learn through traditional research that then can build a conversation around resilience and a complex systems approach to that. To close, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about kind of uh, careers in public health and and, uh, and someone is maybe listening to this and saying, wow, this all sounds great. Yeah. Um, what kind of oppor- opportunities are there out there, maybe maybe as an academic or, or maybe as a practitioner of some sort? What kind of training should people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, be pursuing to follow those roads? So I think at the undergraduate level, actually, a lot of different majors could ultimately take you down a public health path. As you see with me, I started in biology. I have friends who started in the humanities, who started in engineering. And I think most of it ultimately comes back to at what point in your life you find yourself attracted to solving community health issues or addressing them or being part of the way um, we work through community health issues. And that could come from a more medically colored uh, lens, a clinical lens, or even from, like I said, in engineering, those folks who work on the way things are built and how those affect our, our societal health. So I think at some point, people who find themselves excited about those questions or come from an experience where they're either part of a community that's affected or they witness things that are affecting communities and they want to be part of the solution, that's usually, I think, whether you end up in practice or in research, what draws people to public health. And often there's a a strong equity component there too, where most people who gravitate toward public health are interested in reducing the disparities that we see in terms of the health, not only within our country, but internationally too. So those kind of dual things, if those things matter, if those things are part of what get people excited about going to work every day, then I think your first path after, really at the undergrad level, as long as you get a good undergraduate education, I think you could go on to be a good public health researcher or practitioner. At some point, you'll want to decide probably to go to graduate school if you want to make public health a primary part of your work, either to get a master's degree, a master of public health, or you can do probably an MHA and get similar training. And I think at that point, you know, many people are 
fully satisfied and would would stop and find a good work setting. If people really want to push it further, like my own story where there's an unanswered question or you feel you need to add to your professional development, either through analytics or through some other skill that you feel, "Mm, if I had the skill, I could take my career to another level, then maybe there's some level of doctoral training or just growing if you're in industry. Often there are career paths that will support your professional growth. But I think it's really all just starting with that excitement about community health. And I will say, too, that there are people who don't call themselves public health practitioners, like my colleagues who are engineers by training, but their lens is so focused on public health and that collective problem solving that most of the interdisciplinary work that we're doing ultimately is public health work at the same time that it's civil engineering work. So another thing that I love about teaching is you know, I work with students who may never go on to get that MPH or, you know, will end up being engineers or maybe people who work in a a business school setting, but they understand the issues of how the layers of the onion work. And they bring the public health lens through their training, sometimes very much just by being an engineer or leading a nonprofit or being the manager of a hospital to the work that they do because they understand the philosophy of public health and the approach of public health. So there's that way of working too. And so I always say sort of building this army of public health practitioners, some of them wear the public health coat to work and others of them wear a different coat, but they're still working on public health issues. If people want to find out more about your research uh, or maybe reach out to you, how would they go about finding you? So they can just actually Google ITUR, A-Y-T-U-R, C-H-H-S, U-N-H, and that will take you to my U-N-H faculty homepage. And there are a lot of links there about the different work that I do, a little more kind of biographical information, and some ways to tap into publications if people want to access them. Thank you so much for your time Sure. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community and we'll talk with you again soon.